0: Loudspeaker Studios.
1: Good morning, Tromaville, and welcome to the second episode With me, your host, Zach Bynes. The podcast where I do a deep dive on a trauma film. The movie on today's episode was honestly one of the big movies I wanted to talk about when I thought of doing this podcast. As it's always been one of my favorites, but rarely hearing it mentioned outside of diehard trauma fans. That movie is Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wendigo. This is what Lloyd Kaufman had to say about Frostbiter in his book, All I need to know about filmmaking, I learned from the Toxic Avenger. Not to be confused with the great American poet Robert Frostbiter, or the British talk show host Sir David Frostbiter, this is THE Frostbiter, based on the Caliber Press comic book. The cast includes Ron Ashton, former guitarist for Iggy Pop and the Stooges, one of the most horrifying creatures ever to be committed to celluloid. Not Ron, the Frostbiter. It destroys those who disturb its resting place. When the Frostbiter arrives, hell has frozen over. Indeed scary. I have a short interview clip of Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD, interviewing Lloyd Kaufman about Frostbiter. Let's listen.
0: Lloyd Kaufman, president of Turbo Studios and the creator of the Toxic Avenger. I just finished watching Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wendigo, fabulous movie. How is this put together? Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wendigo was a comic book put out by Caliber Press, oh, wow. and uh, Tom Chaney, the director, and the Sorensen producing team made a movie out of it. And lucky for Trauma, we were able to uh, release it on Trauma Team Video. The movie was put together so well. Uh, was it our first time director, or had he been around for many years? The director is Tom Chaney, and I think, I'm pretty sure this was his first movie. is a good place for first time directors. I was really frightened by the special effects. Everything looks so real and live, very animate. Uh, who, who did that? Gary Jones, who is also the associate producer of *Frostbite*, all of it is non-computer, no high-tech. It's all done by hand, lovingly by hand. And it's great to see a movie where you don't have all this high-tech, uh, phony uh, people flying through uh, computerized backgrounds, or sometimes the stars aren't even in the movie. In this movie, the actors are actually there. And, and it, it is more frightening than, than what you see out of these hundred, $100 million movies. The music brought me through the film very well. And I like the rock and roll. Who, who was playing the music there? Well, you know, speaking of music Ron Ashton is the star of frostbiter he also was lead guitarist for Iggy exactly Iggy Pop, pop, and, the, right, exactly, yes, Iggy pop yes. and the Stooges not only does Ron Ashton star in the movie but he plays uh, he plays guitar on the music track and of course Iggy pop is becoming big again thanks to this masterpiece called train spotting that's coming out now so uh, you're going to hear a lot more about Ron Ashton and Iggy pop and you know Elvis uh, Hitler and other alternative rock groups comprise a good deal of the score too and of course The uh, groups are very famous now. They were not famous when they were first discovered by Tom Cheney and the Sorens.
1: That is about all the information I could find about the making of Frostbiter, Wrath of the Windigo*, other than a short Wikipedia page. And I was pretty skeptical of the accuracy that the information that Sergeant Kabuki Man was bringing us fans. One thing I hope to accomplish on this podcast is not only to celebrate those movies, um, but also giving you, the listener, some information on how the movie was made. So, I tracked down the filmmakers, director Tom Chaney, and producer slash special effects Gary Jones, and asked them if they wouldn't mind coming on the show to tell us more about the making of Frostbiter. And fortunately for us, they said yes. But before we get to our special guests, I want to play you the trailer. The trailer is all instrumental with no speaking, so I want you to close your eyes and imagine the following. Unless you're driving to work, and then for the love of God, please keep your eyes open. All right. So, imagine this. Rockstar. Ron Ashton, blue stop motion centaur looking demons, miniature airplanes being attacked by winged serpents, snow covered cabins in the woods that seem to feel like they have come straight from the Evil Dead franchise, blood, gore, a topless Miss October who turns into a demon, and then the tagline Hell has frozen over. Here it is, the trailer for Frostbiter Wrath of the Wendigo. Welcome back. That was the trailer for Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wendigo. We're here with our special guests today, producer, special effects of Frostbiter, Gary Jones, and writer and director of Frostbiter, Tom Cheney. Thank you guys for coming on.
2: Thanks for having us, Zach. Excited good, to be, to be here. good to be here.
1: I was telling Gary earlier when I decided to do this podcast, I wanted to shed some light on some trauma movies that don't often get talked about, which really should and number two on my list was Frostbiter. It's honestly one of my favorite trauma movies of all time. So it's definitely an honor that you guys would want to talk about it.
2: Well, thanks for having us and thanks for saying that. Yeah, it's um, the legend of Frostbiter goes on. And <clears throat> a very, very strange thing happened to me at the end of last year. I um, received a random email uh, from a woman that claimed to be out of Iceland and um she said that she puts on every year the frostbiter film festival and would i be interested in going to iceland to to speak at this festival and i thought i was being pumped um but through the course of the next few months and emails and and you know kind of checking out this festival that actually existed in this small fishing town in iceland my wife and my son and I ended up in Iceland in January to be a part of the Frostbiter Film Festival.
1: That's
2: awesome and it, it was like, are you kidding me? That's like the worst movie ever made <laughs> um, and but no they they love this movie and um, this woman uh, Lovisa, she actually uh, enjoyed the movie as a kid. it kind of stuck you know stuck with her and, um, so she has this horror film festival in Iceland, and she named it Frostbiter. Actually, I know you won't be able to see this, but this is uh, this is the poster from this year's Frostbiter Film Festival.
1: That's so <laughs> cool!
2: <laughs> yeah, it was it was great, and it's a really cool film festival. Um, it's in this small fishing town called Akranas, which is about an hour, a little more than an hour, out of Reykjavik, Iceland, and. Uh, They flew us out. They treated us like royalty, and it was just an amazing, surreal experience.
1: That's cool. (laughs) That's awesome.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so if you ever get a chance you want to hang out with some really cool people and experience a really –
3: go ahead, Gary. (laughs) No, I was saying that. It's really cool. It's like we did a movie, what, in 88? 1988, I think. What, this one? Wendigo was it 80 or frostbiter wait 88 87 I don't know when was around there. <laughs> yeah I mean, which yeah, is funny
1: I've been looking up uh, trying to find information about the movie and it's kind of sparse out there on the internet lands so I've seen 1990 and 1995
3: <laughs> you know it, I think it was the release was 1990 I think we started in 88 87 88 it was a couple year process but uh, no I was just thinking Tom um, you probably would have enjoyed that call had you got that call in 1990 would have been, (laughs) (laughs) would have been more uplifting, you know, but it was, it was cool. I had mentioned uh, earlier, you know, it was like, we, we learned on that movie. I mean, Frostbite is the movie that, you know, we got to try everything on and figure out how to make movies really. And it, you know, if it wasn't for that, you know, Mosquito wouldn't have. So it was kind of, it is interesting that, but Frostbiter kind of was the beginning of everything that's so cool
1: um well real quick uh tell us a little bit about the story of frostbiter like what, what's the movie about
2: so the movie is about um it, it, how, how do how do i describe it quickly it uh centers around a creature that's been guarded for a very long time by an old ancient old man called the guardian and he lives in this cabin up you know, somewhere cold, and the cabin is surrounded by a circle of skulls, and a couple of um, hunters, drunk hunters, come up to his cabin and stumble upon the old man, and he tries to get them to just leave, and they end up shooting both one of the skulls and shooting him, uh, really by accident, and the hunter, the hunters were played by Ron Ashton, rock star Ron Ashton, and a friend of ours, Dave Woe who Gary Jones has been a partner with for a very, very long time. And um, once that circle is broken, uh, the creature, the frostbiter, who we were calling Wendigo, comes back to life. So at the same time, fate picks a new guardian. So what happens is as this creature is now released upon this small island that's full of hunters uh, to wreak havoc, another guardian is chosen and this young lady must travel far across the country to defeat and put this creature back at rest. And that's, I don't know if that comes out in the movie, uh, but uh, that's the story. <laughs> I think
1: it does. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think we used, uh, didn't we use Manitou Island? Yes. yes Manitou Island. <laughs> Manitou, and, yeah. And the line is where small game are plentiful. And we show this frozen skull island where it looks like nothing could ever live. but. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, we're small game, we're plentiful.
1: Those matte, those matte paintings that you guys have of, of uh, Manitou Island are just, they're awesome looking. <laughs> are yeah, they hanging up in our... someone's house? Or...
2: <laughs> Bob, Bob Kaganich, a friend of ours, who's a, an incredible artist, and I think Gary probably is using them on his new movie as well. Uh, we've used and known Bob for a long time and he did those paintings for us. That's he, did, awesome.
3: uh, he did stuff on uh, Evil Dead 2. Did the bridge painting you know the the broken bridge on evil dead 2 and yeah he done a lot of matte paintings back in the day
1: that's awesome that's awesome so one thing i did see was that there's rumor that it that the movie got started via from a comic book that it was adapted from from a comic book uh, actually i, I tr- was able to track down a copy of the Frost cool. Spider comic book but <laughs>
2: Actually, Zach, the comic book came second. So, and I don't know, you know, I don't know all the, the marketing. Once we got a producer involved and he put in a lot of finish money, a lot of weird things started to happen. But um, that comic book came afterwards and that was done by uh, Dark Horse, is that? Dark Horse Comics? Uh, Caliber? Caliber
1: Press. Caliber Press.
2: Caliber Press. Caliber oh, okay, Press. Caliber. Yeah. And they uh, they, were right here in the area and I actually worked with them in doing the the comic book. So even though they thought it'd be cool to say based on it. It wasn't, it was based I, I wrote the screenplay in my mother's kitchen.
1: I I was wondering, I was like, there's a lot of trauma references on the comic and I'm pretty sure this was started before <laughs> trauma even picked up the phone.
3: Yeah. It's true. That, that comic book has a lot of, it's trauma.
1: Have you, so, uh, this is a pretty trauma centric podcast. Have you had any experience with trauma before? Before any of this, are like familiar with the Toxic Avenger or anything like that before Frostbite?
2: Of course, we were familiar with Toxic Avenger. It was kind of an independent movie that went crazy and really kind of lifted trauma um, into the
3: spotlight, right, Gary? Yeah, I mean, that, we kind of been fo- we were following the trauma movies, um, Sergeant Kabuki Man, and uh, Toxic Avenger, and you know, so we we were very much aware of them at the time when we were making, making Frostbite. Awesome, but 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 we connected
2: with them when we went out to the American Film Market. Right. Gary and I were out there, and we were just showing the movie to people. And at that time, like I went two years ago or last year to AFM, and you know, you need a pass, and you need all the security and different levels of passes. I, back then, I remember just walking around and just yeah. like introducing myself and saying. Oh, I have this little movie, which I like take a look at it. And that's where we
3: connected with trauma. That, that really, actually, that was kind of the cool thing. Cause you know, you, as a filmmaker, you know, you're making a movie and everything, but then it's also like, okay, it's done. And now you're going to go into the marketplace. And back then AFM was pretty cool. You could walk in, get a drink, meet people, see, you know, other filmmakers and stars. And actually talk to di- distributors. They would say like, ah, oh, okay. We'll give you this much for it or whatever, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, we're gonna make a deal, you know? It's like but uh it was pretty cool. I I remember that was kind of an eye opener there. And um yeah, I, I remember being pretty excited when it looked like Troma was gonna pick it up. Yeah, we were you no, know, we actually um did they pick it up they picked it up Tom before we went we met them in New York, didn't they? Yeah, so remember. they
2: picked it up at at AFM. And then I think we were in New York mixing Mosquito. That's, and right. Drop, and drop That's right. And we dropped by, and and
3: uh, Lloyd Kaufman would call <laughs> you Tom Chaney. And, yes. uh, <laughs> Tom! Tom! <laughs> well, the guys were great because it was Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz, and they had desks like this, right? So they faced <laughs> each other. And you'd go up there, and it was in Hell's Kitchen, and you'd go up these stairs, and it was this real thin building, and the rooms were just packed with boxes and kind of looked like how we made our movies, you know, I mean, it's just stuff everywhere. And you go in and, you know, we sat there in the chairs and Lloyd's offering us like fresh fruit. There's like fruit vendors outside, you know, like the old Godfather 2 fruit vendors. <laughs> he's got oranges and they're having an orange, you know, and he's giving us oranges. And yeah, he orange.
2: gave us oranges.
3: He was like, hey, you want an orange? Yeah. Tom, and, take uh, this orange. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. Did you don't have any orange? money, but here's an orange. <laughs> yeah, the cool thing about Lloyd, you know, with with trauma, and that even Lloyd is like, yes, they're very, they're low budget, you know, they were low budget uh, distributors, but they were real, you know, like you walked in there and he was right there and Michael Hertz is right there. And, you know, you're one-on-one and they're filmmakers. So it's weird. You, you, you know, there's a comfort zone. You feel like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're at a certain level with them they don't really, they don't talk down to you. It's not like, and, and they don't throw millions of dollars at you, but it just felt kind of interesting that we, we had arrived at a certain level that we were with a distributor who you could actually have a one-on-one discussion with, which is, was kind of rare for us at the time. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the, the
1: making of the movie Frostbiter. Um, so a lot, you, you were telling me earlier, Gary, that, um, a good chunk of the movie was filmed in a basement, but parts of it were actually filmed in uh, what's it? Your uncle's cabin.
3: Yeah, we did about I don't know, Tom. I think we did maybe maybe about 10% of the interiors, but most of the exteriors of the where you see the cabin we did up in Michigan. And I think we I don't know I think we shot for a week. I can't remember five six days, Tom. Um, we lived in the cabin. We just drove we drove up there, stayed in the cabin, and shot in and around the cabin and slept in the cabin and shot sequences there. And that was really when we actually started the movie where the guys come in and find the guardian and the hunters and there's a little bit of attack in there. And uh, it, I think it's really the, uh, um, was the opening with the two hunters. That's primarily what we did there. Uh, right. It was kind of fun and then we had all the fake snow and we were blowing it all around, you know, it was winter time and everything. And What'd Ron you use Ant-
1: for fake snow?
3: We had those flakes, those those little plastic flakes. Okay, we had we'd been doing a lot of commercial work, so we were able to get stuff from of the commercials on that when we were working. But uh, Ron Ashton would make chili, and uh, you know he'd make dinner, and we you know sleep on the cots there, and it was kind of cold and everything. But we'd get up and turn on the lights, get something to eat, and start shooting. It was kind of was a a, a winter film camp. It's kind of yeah, fun. that's a great
2: description. Yeah, so. Gary and I were work. Gary and I met. We should talk about that. We met on a, a low budget movie that shot uh, here, just west of Ann Arbor in a small town called Manchester. And I was a film student at the time, and Gary was a working effects guy, and he had been hired to do the effects, and I was just a production assistant. And so I met Gary, and um, for lack of a better term, was instantly attracted to his energy and what he could do with the. Uh, the effects work that he was doing and his knowledge of filmmaking. And so we became pretty good friends on that movie, which I thought was a really cool experience despite it being a pretty bad movie. Um, and after that, we you know, we decided to start this thing. And I would, like I said, I was still in college and, but was working in the film industry on commercials or whatever. And I would save up every penny I could. And then we would buy some film stock, rent cameras, pull the gang together and then shoot for a couple days. And uh, of course, at that time, you know, it it cost money to process the film, you had to buy the film, you had to So it was a slow process for that reason. Um, But eventually we, Gary and I both worked on another movie years later on the west side of Michigan. We're from Michigan. uh, And on that movie, I connected with the producer of that film and told him I had a movie that was almost done and we just needed finish money. And uh, he and I connected, cut a deal and then we finished the movie with him
1: awesome um so i've noticed just kind of going through um your guys's imdbs that it seems like there's a lot of crossover in like the michigan film community i see evil dead 2 army of darkness and a lot of sam Raimi's guys pop up in there as well um and gary you did work on evil dead 2 and army of darkness if i'm not mistaken
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, The first movie I worked on with those guys was um, the XYZ Murders, which became a crime wave, was was the second movie. Um, I had heard about the guys when they were making the original Evil Dead. I read it in a newspaper and I couldn't find where they were at because they weren't even shooting in Michigan. So I sort of missed the first Evil Dead, but then connected with them afterwards. But on Evil Dead 2, um, I got hired to do a bunch of uh, additional props. They did a lot of reshooting. And they came to Michigan and rebuilt part of the cabin and shot a bunch of stuff. So I got hired to do a bunch of uh, supplemental special effects and miniature trees attacking the cabin. And Tom came and helped me on that. We, we built miniature trees and puppeteer trees. So I was doing effects on that. And then Army of Darkness was out in LA where I, I went out to LA to do that, to work on that one and did a lot of propage and stuff. But yeah, we um. so anything that would come to Michigan, you know, would be like, I would either get on and doing special effects or in Tom would get on things, different things too, either in effects or building sets or props or, you know, so it's sort of like, I look back at it now. It's like anything that came to town, any professional films, we kind of always got something on them, you know, cause we were, uh, I know we were good at what we did, maybe not the best, but, uh, I think we also had that naive enthusiasm where like it didn't matter if it was a dollar or 10, this was a movie. Yeah. And, you know, we had that approach, you know, and I think it, um, when me and Tom connected, you know, and started working together, that was really the thing. It was sort of like a fearlessness of like, oh, we're just going to go make a movie, you know? Tom had a big project that he wanted to do and it was like, didn't nothing seemed out of reach, you know? And so I think that was the, that was sort of the key to what, we did, you know, and how we connected on all this stuff. But yeah, it was a lot of crossover. And I, uh, Tom, you worked on, um, did you do some sets or something on the Hoffa movie or? Yeah, I worked on Hoffa for a few months and then I worked, I did work on Evil
2: Dead 2 for probably three or four months. I worked on the set. We rebuilt the cabin set. I worked with That's Larry, right. yeah. uh, Larry on that. And then I worked with you on the effects. So I ended
3: up working on it for three or four months and, um, and then Moontrap. We all worked on Moontrap and did a bunch of stuff on the original Moontrap. And uh, so, yeah, it seems like we always kind of, you know, we got most of the things that came to town and re- right in around that time frame. we were able to get on them. And in the meantime, doing our own stuff, you know, trying to push, our, push the ball yeah. up the hill, you know, make our own movies. Well, one, um, one thing I always
1: thought was fun. So this goes back to when I first saw Frostbiter um, when I was in high school, I was a student filmmaker. Uh then and in Evil Dead they have a Hills Have Eyes poster hanging on the wall. Um and then in Frostbiter, you guys have an Evil Dead 2 poster hanging on the wall. So my student film, I put my frostbiter box up on the wall. I was (laughs) I was like, Well, I'll be the I'll be I'll be in that lineage. (laughs) The next line. Yeah, that's
2: cool. Really cool.
1: So some of those outdoor shoots uh I'm from Denver, Colorado, so I've never braved filming in the snow or the cold. And just seeing those dudes out walking around, it looked awful. Like, was it pretty cold on those days? Or I have a
2: reputation, Zach, of not shooting in, like, a 75-degree day or, uh, you know, a perfect stage. I have a reputation of dunes in the winter, snow in the winter. so, yes, it was extremely cold and um, we, everybody kind of gutted it out. Uh, and so,
3: yes, it was very, very cold shooting. <laughs> well, you know, it was also we, uh, one of the reasons, you know, me and Tom connected a lot on the same type of movies we like. You know, you say the extremes, but, you know, if you're going to do uh, a creature feature a monster movie, you know, a, a, you know of lore, you know, we love like, you know, Deliverance or uh, Emerald Forest, you know, or Bridge on the River Kwai. When you go back to those kind of movies, um, you know, this is not, you know, My Fair Lady where you're in a park or, you know, we're on a beach somewhere talking about a monster. I mean, so it's like the natural thing was to go to those extremes. You know, we I, I, obviously it was cold, you know, and I'm like, you know, the stage was set. It had it was yeah. a win, you know, the movie's winter. Well, guess what? You know, uh it's easy to not fake it if you've got it, but, uh, you know, it was interesting though. It was like, yes, it was cold, but there was a, uh, there was an energy about shooting, you know, cause we were shooting the first movie yeah. and it was about, we were rolling film and we had sound and we had lights and, and we knew at the end, you know, we could get warm in the cabin and we'd have chili or whatever. And we'd have some beers. So it, it really, you know, it was brutal, but, um, it's hard to say that you know. Would I do it differently? I don't know. If Tom will write the write another sequel, maybe we can shoot it in Hawaii or something on the beach. But <laughs> no, I think that I think the extremes is you have to do that. And yeah, Tom Tom is like you know the Iron Man here. I mean, it's like yeah. If it's nice weather, it's not time to shoot. Yeah, got to go there when there's a hurricane. That's going to be cool, right? Right.
1: Whenever I shoot my stuff, it's super late at night. We get the best performances of sleep deprivations. (laughs) Um, So how did Ron Ashton uh, get involved with the movie? And for those listening who might not know, Ron Ashton is the lead guitar or was the lead guitar for Iggy Pop and the Stooges. So that's a pretty awesome role there.
2: Yeah. Ron, um, I think is ranked one of the top 25 guitarist in the world of all time, rock guitarist. And uh, Gary and I, I think Gary and I both met him. Gary may have known him earlier, but we both met him on the movie, The Carrier that Gary and I met on. That's where we met. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you met Ron there too? Same time. Yep. And um, Ron was just this incredibly funny, nice man. And I honestly, I'm a little naive when it comes to music and probably naive to a, to a lot of things but i didn't realize who ron ashton was and i just became friends with him and then on the set one day somebody said to me you know who that is right and i said no it's ron ashton and they said no he's the lead guitarist from iggy and the stooges and uh you know i i discovered Iggy and the Stooges after I met Ron. So Ron and I became friends, lifelong friends. And so did Gary, maybe even too, uh, even more so. But um, when we said to Ron, hey, we want to do this little movie. You want to do it? He was the first guy to say, yeah. And um, he jumped right in with both feet. And uh, we made a couple of other movies with Ron after that. Ron was, um,
3: I mean, Ron is a movie fan. He had said that if he wasn't, uh, you know, if he wasn't doing the guitar, wasn't doing music, he wanted to be a B-movie actor. You know, he loved the B-movie actors, you know, the working class guy actor that never made a hundred million dollars. But, you know, you saw him. He was in the Rockford Files or he was in that Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry movie. You know, he loved all those B-movie guys. And I think when you see Ron's performances, it's clear, you know, (laughs) he's, he's, you know, he's got the B-movie thing, you know, so... Uh, when I go over to his house, we'd set up all night smoking cigars and, and watching movie, old late-night movies, you know. So he was he was such a movie fan that it didn't matter where we were. He was going to be there. And uh,
2: Ron had a very funny, this is not politically correct, and I'll say it, but Ron <laughs> once told me that if a movie didn't have monsters, submarines, or boobs, he wasn't watching it.
1: <laughs> There's the filmmaker Don Doler, he did a uh, Night Beast. He said, yep. he said, "The movies I make are have boobs, blood, and beasts. So,
2: uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Ron definitely would have watched it, and um <laughs> so Ron, like Gary said, just loved this type of movie and would just jump in with us with both feet. He was a
3: great, great man. He sent casts. Yeah, we you
2: um, know that, and that
3: the, the first stuff we shot for uh, for Frostbiter was the scene with Ron and Dave Logue, uh up in the cabin where the two hunters come in. It was like the first stuff and I remember Ron up there you know Ron's making the, the food for us you know and he's also performance but then we get ready to shoot in the morning we get up you know we just throw shit on right yeah Ron's in there blow drying his hair <laughs> you know like it's got to be perfect. So if you look at that movie, you see him out in the snow with the gun hunting, but he's got perfect hair. It's just he had a he just had a style, you know. It was like how he wanted himself to be seen, you know. Yeah. Um, and he he had a vision, and you know the the lines come across, you know. And I, I don't I think the humor crept in more and more because of Ron. I I I think we started out with it not being. Uh, we didn't—we were playing the humor so much, but I mean, you couldn't help it. You had Ron Ashton there; you had to use him, and yeah. he became—for uh, us—he became that thing of like we've got a character. You know, there is a guy you can follow. He doesn't—he can be right over here, off to the side, but you know, you—you you can always go to him, and uh, he, it was great. You know, he—he's like the good luck charm. You know, like you get, he had to be in the movie.
1: he's awesome do you guys have a favorite uh iggy and the stooges song gary
3: yeah i do um i guess it's gotta be uh what's the you know i just blanked on it what's (laughs) the song the chant tom you know the chant that we did in uh in frostbiter oh my god it's, one, it's on one of the albums. It's like everybody's sitting around singing rum, ja, ja, Ram ja, Ram ra, ja, rum.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
3: it was not my favorite because I had the, the first Stooges album. I like, you know, 1969. I want to be your dog. I want to be your dog. But uh, when we were doing Wendigo, we sat around in the cabin. We actually sat in that cabin, I think, and recorded us sitting all around singing that. To, yeah. I don't know if we used it in the movie. I can't remember. But... Um, I'd have to say it's that one, because I remember sitting in the cabin with Ron up in upper Michigan with all of us when we were filming, and us sitting around and recording us singing that. So, you know, and then um, I have, you know, many Ron stories. But the last one was, uh, which was probably the coolest, was when they reunited the Iggy and the Stooges, when they got back together, I think it was like 2003 or 2004. They we're going to play at Coachella. It was the first time, like 33, 34 years. And Ron and his brother, uh, Scott was back with Iggy and it was the Stooges back out there performing. And Ron got me and, uh, my family passes on stage. That's awesome. So we were right off the side of the stage with like, you know, uh, there's Cameron Diaz over there. And, uh, um, who's the guy from my uh, cheers. I keep forgetting his name, but you the dancer? Know. no, no, um, the stoner. Um, oh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. And Danny DeVito. And there's all these people. And I'm like, what are these people doing here? You know? <laughs> and the Stooges came out and Coachella just blew up and Ron's out there, you know, just going crazy. And it was just, uh, it, it's like the second experience, you know, that yeah. first one sitting in the cabin with him. And then that one was like, wow, Ron's a superstar. You know, he wanted to, his music and everything but he really was just a guy you know but when he got out there man the crowds loved him and but i think we were fortunate enough i think it was a real smart move time when we talked about who's going to play these hunters we're like well they just get killed off at the beginning of the movie but i think once you got ron in there it was like there's no way ron can die yet yeah
1: (laughs) it's kind of a shock i mean spoiler for those who haven't seen it but it is a shock when when the when the Wendigo gets him and he turns into a zombie because you're like, he's the leading dude. He's going to save everybody.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that turning into a zombie thing, I think that was Tom's way of still not getting rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> so there, so we're on the subject of
1: music. There's a song in the movie I do want to talk about, the Chili song. Chili. No be. No onion, no cheese. That, has, it, that song is ridiculous, and it makes me laugh. You have, like, two different versions. There's more of a rock version. There's one that sounds like a Prince cover. Okay. Right. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the Chili song in the movie, so, and the Chili Monsters? Well,
2: yeah, so <laughs> the, the funny thing is, and it's, it's amazing to me, like, here I am in Iceland and we showed Windwalker Walker as part of the festival, they showed it. And then like she she scheduled this other event and I highly, highly recommend this film festival, super cool, where we went into a bowling alley and in, and in like the basement of this bowling alley, she showed Frostbite, And <laughs> so it was the first time in really probably 10, 15, 20 years that I'd seen the movie and uh, just, you know, doing other things. And um, I, the crowd was crazy about it. And, you know, a lot of these people it had been, of course, the movie that they named the festival after. And I said, but Lovisa, what about the music? She's like, we love the music. Well, that was an issue of contention when we were making the movie. Uh, the music was was brought on by a music producer Uh, who was brought in by the producer of the movie. And he wanted to score it with this crazy rock and roll. And he even came to the mix. And at times I felt was mixing the rock music too loud. And so I'm working with David Cronenberg sound mixers and they're like arguing with this guy. No, that's too loud. We're going to put it through a radio. And he's like, no, 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 bring it up. Bring it up. I want it up. I want it up. And um, so... He, he the music is what it is now, um, and uh, the chili song was put together and done by this m- music producer out of Detroit, Michigan, Rick Chofey. and uh, so that I really he didn't have a whole lot to do with the music. The chili bean monsters I did have a lot to do with, um, and I had created a chili bean monster uh, that was that I shot, and I shot pieces of it, and I showed it to Gary, and Gary said. Tom, that's the worst special effects of all time. He said, we've got to do something much more simple. I had like these winged creatures and they were flying across the cabin. And, and it, it, you know, it, it was what it was. And uh, Gary said, let's do a, a puppet. Let's do puppets and we can puppet these things. And so he created a bunch of these little puppets and we reshot the scene. And I thought that they were just amazing. And that, that really is a fun scene.
1: I love those chili bean monsters. There, <laughs> that's all Gary Jones right there.
2: <laughs> Gary Jones, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Well, Gary, can you talk a little bit more about the special effects in the movie? I one of my favorite, and I don't know if you did this effect or not. One of the my favorites is at the beginning when you see the guy just melting down into the skeleton.
3: Oh, the the, the skeleton. stop. Uh, yeah, Time, I think you did that one, didn't you? I did. Yep. Yeah, I just
2: created a clay figure, and I. Sculpted it away and shot
3: it stop motion. That was uh, that was Tom's homage. That was the Evil Dead thing. You know, we we uh, you know we were obviously very conscious of the Evil Dead movie, and I think we were trying. You know, we were it was very it was obviously inspiration. I yeah. think that one that shot there really reminded me of like yeah we're in Evil Dead territory. But it was kind of cool for that effect for what that was that effect. Um, I was working at the time I was working. I had a, a company called Acme Special Effects. And my partner tonight, Dave Wogue. you know, we were working out of a one-room schoolhouse, but we had started on the movie and we had done, I think the first thing we did was an old age makeup for the guardian in the movie, the old guy. Yeah, we kind of, it kind of resembles a little bit like um, little Dustin big man. Hoffman. Yeah, little big man, Dustin Hoffman, the Dick <laughs> Smith makeup. So, you know, it's a little homage to that. That was like the first thing we did, and then I think we then we made a giant blue hand for the go monster. We just had pieces of stuff But, um, so when we first shot, we had those elements and skulls and things. And uh, then we also had a skeleton that we put a bunch of blood and stuff on that. We kind of puppeteered in the cabin for a little bit of fighting with Dave Wogue and slapping and stuff. Yeah. Um, but then was later on and it was like the second leg of the shoe. And this is, I think, after, uh, the other producers came on Tom with, with some financing to, uh, help get the film finished. And then, uh, to up the ante, we, as Tom said, he, he showed me the chili bean monster he had, and I, it was like a devil with wings and right. stuff, but I was like, you know, if it was just too weird, we were kind of at a point to where, you know, we had the movie, we had the movie, and it was just trying to think through, of like, what's going to be satisfying, and, you know, the chili bean monster thing was like, well, it's coming out of the chili, well, you know, so that sort of influenced a lot of stuff, and we we're trying to think budget wise, what can we do? You know, can we make, you know, instead of having articulated, can we make it a hand puppet with rods and stuff? And so that became a hand puppet. And then we had shots with legs running skitters across the floor, but it'd be easy to just put your hand up through a pot of chili, you know, and put chili beans on it and stuff. And of course it's brown and everything. So we made hand puppets for those. And then, um, uh, and we, we rigged some of them to blow up. We squibbed them and splattered them all over the place. And Tom was you know, throwing chili at the wall and stuff You know, for when they get shot. But then like the, probably the, the biggest thing was the witch outfit when um, our good buddy Joe Hale, or no, Joe Hale wore the suit. Yeah. Uh, um, I forget who turned into the witch. Oh, no, it was the girl who- the Miss she October. Miss <laughs> yeah. October. of the center The centerfold centerfold came in, yeah. yeah but we made like a full body suit for, for our buddy, Joe Hale, who's a filmmaker with us, a grip, a gaffer, he does everything. And he was willing to wear the suit. We made a full size, a full suit for him, all out of foam latex and everything. And that was a, that was the biggest deal. And we had done stuff, but I'd never really made anything that big. So that was like the first real foam latex full suit. And of course it shrank all, it shrank by the time we put it on Joel, it was like joking him. And, uh, but uh that was pretty cool you know when we finally got that together and shot that in the basement um it the stuff just felt right you know i mean wendigo was a big learning curve for us you know we had we had worked on other people's movies and now we were kind of making our own and so i think the movie as it went along and it took time to make we were able to add to it you know and cover up you know things we didn't like and add to it to kind of take it in a different direction but Effects-wise, those were kind of the main things, and then we did a we did the airplane scene where the flying reptilicus demon attacks the airplane. And, uh, <laughs> I like airplane that you and, said uh, it was reptilicus because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Dave Wog did most of that. Dave Wog built uh, built all that, did most of that. But you know, we were references <laughs> referencing our all our favorite movies and stuff. But yeah, you know, the film it it sort of took on you know at the beginning when Ron came on board, it sort of influenced things and. You know, Tom had the script, but he was able to go, well, if you keep Ron's character alive, you know, you could shoe him in over here, bring it over there. And so I think we had a, there was a lot of happy accidents. You know, had we just gone up and spent one week and made a movie and came home, yeah, that wouldn't be Frostbiter, you know. So I think it was a lot of, you know, starts and stops. But I think ultimately at the end, we ended up putting, you know, working through all the different things to make it as cool as we could. And I know, Tom, you know, at the very end there with the music and everything, it was kind of disconcerting and a little disappointing to hear it finally. But I got to say, over time, there's like, a, there's a weird charm to it. And I don't think I could watch the chili bean scene without hearing that, you know, This <laughs> yeah, that music. So yeah. it's like, it grows on you. I, I think it, I think Troma loves it for that reason, that it, it just was how they would have made it how Troma would have made that
1: movie. <laughs> no, I, I love it. Is Do you know if there's any talk of a Blu-ray coming out at all? Because if there's a movie that's deserved of a Blu-ray, definitely Frostbiter.
2: You know, I don't know. Um, actually, they <laughs> Troma has owned it a lot longer than the original deal. I, and I probably should contact them and see, you know, if they have any future plans. I mean, I know it's still out there. I know it's on Amazon or was on Amazon prime for a while. And, um, so I haven't had contact with trauma. Jeez, probably in 20 years. So as far as a Blu-ray, I don't know, but Gary actually had mentioned that as well because Gary had just talked to Gary just put out the 25th, 20th or 25th, Oh, uh, 20th. 20th anniversary of mosquito. And, and, um, that was re transferred and you know, uh,
3: that was put out on Blu-ray right care. Yeah. Synapse, uh, Synapse films put it out for us and uh, they do, I mean, their stuff's the best, you know, they, those guys love movies and they, they go the extra mile to make sure you're paying 14 bucks or 20 bucks, wherever you're paying, you're getting the goods. And yeah, they, they did a really good job on it. But yeah, I think it, you know, Frostbiter would – it would be very interesting to see it in light because, you know, everybody knows it. We had the same issue with Mosquito. Everybody kind of knows Frostbiter. If they know it, they saw a VHS tape, you know, or maybe they did get a DVD later, but I'm sure it's not a very good quality. Um, and so that I noticed with Mosquito, once we did the new transfer and we look, looked at the Blu-ray, it was like, Jesus. It never – I've only seen the movie look that good one time at a, th- a screen we did at the Michigan theater. When we put it on a big screen, we went, we have a movie, <laughs> you know? So I think it would be cool to get frostbite or out like that. And uh, I'm not sure about.
1: Uh, well, I know uh trauma it right. Now. I know trauma has been putting stuff out with vinegar syndrome who like synapse. They, they do a pretty good job and they actually work with the filmmakers and stuff. So we'll put that I'm, out in the ether. There you, go. there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll bother vinegar syndrome or, or synapse. Hey, Tom,
3: Tom, do you have any uh, elements?
2: Any um... – I have some elements. I'd have to scrape together other elements. Um, you know, it's been so long and so many movies ago, I'd have to see what I have, you know. I
3: was just wondering if you had any work print or anything, any out, outtakes or anything. that would be kind of fun. I might some have of some that stuff. DHS behind-the-scenes stuff. But oh, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: be awesome well before we wrap up on on uh, frostbiter and start talking about some other movies uh any final thoughts on frostbiter
2: uh i'm i'm thrilled that it seems to have this second life or this long life but you know i mean in the last year you know connecting with you for this podcast and seeing it all the time via trauma and and the frostbiter film festival in, in iceland it's you know it's it's really um It's nice and it's kind of a surprise to me, you know, this little movie that we put together so long ago just seems to have this life. And and I'm honored to, uh, you know, that people like it and, you know, are still watching it.
1: It's so much fun. (laughs) Thanks, thank you. Well, I wanna talk about Mosquito now because it seems like so many webs from Frostbiter like just kind of go over to Mosquito. Uh, Tom, you did director of photography on that one, and Gary, you directed uh, Mosquito. You want to tell us, for, uh, well, first we'll play the trailer real quick.
4: From the producers of The Blob and Prince of Darkness and the special effects wizards behind Evil Dead 3, Hard Target, and Batman returns comes the science fiction film of the year. It came from another galaxy. It transformed one of Earth's smallest insects into a bloodthirsty swarm of gel. Five people brought together by fate will confront their worst nightmares.
1: There is definitely something out
3: there aliens, and they're everywhere. And this guy's obviously been zapped Are you insinuating that my brother and I have done anything wrong?
4: Something is killing these people and sucking them dry of blood. It's a mosquito, all right, I'm positive.
1: Take a nap, pal.
4: Eggs, mosquito
3: eggs, hundreds of
1: them,
4: thousands of them. Ain't life a bitch. Steve Dixon. Ron Ashton. H.O. LaSalle, Tim Lovelace, and Gunnar Hansen, star of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They will fight to survive and battle. The ultimate enemy.
0: Man, the late
1: show doesn't get any better than this. That was the trailer, and, uh, you want to tell us real quick the synopsis of mosquito? Well,
2: I'll let Gary tell the synopsis, but um basically we after after Frostbiter, what at the time it was Wendigo, and then Troma actually retitled it Frostbiter. Um after Frostbiter, and you know what's funny is I noticed that Troma is now calling Frostbiter Wendigo. I don't know if you've noticed that at all, but like if you look it up on uh on imdb or some sites it now says wendigo so it's almost like they've gone back to my original title i'm not sure what's happening there but and after- well,
1: there
3: was a there was another movie called wendigo that came out not too long ago uh,
1: larry mm-hmm. Fezzenden directed that
3: one yeah and if i'm not mistaken that's what trauma is doing hey let's can let's let the public think this is that one
1: you know <laughs> the old roger corman no no kids carnosaur it's hey, making a- his jurassic park <laughs> make a- yeah.
3: hey sell sell a few more dvds or blue you know vhs tapes that way. <laughs> yeah.
2: So after after frostbiter was done, you know, the question is what's next and a um, couple of the people that had worked on frostbiter in the finish, uh, Dave Theory and Eric Pasquarelli and I were putting together a movie um, at the time called Clash of the Astronauts. And we were picturing, you know, trying to raise more money than we than we had for Frostbiter. And we were successful to a certain point, but we weren't able to raise as much money as we thought it would take to make this movie. And so finally, I remember going in, we had a little office in Ann Arbor and going in one day and and saying to Eric and David, you know, guys, we should just do another small thing. You know, and Gary's got this idea to shoot a movie about, at the time I think he was calling it Skeeters, Giant Mosquitoes. Let's call Gary, and let's partner up with Gary and let's make Skeeters because we can make, we'll do it just like we did Frostbiter. Well, you know, we'll just, if it's weekend shoots it's weekend shoots, I mean, we can easily raise 30, 40, $50,000 to start to shoot this thing. So we called Gary and we're like, Hey, what do you think?
3: And there you go. So Gary. Yeah, actually. So we, um, like I said, coming off of Frostbiter, you know, we, we, went back out into the work world, right? You know, we're working on other people's stuff and I kept doing effects and that. And I had this idea about doing a giant mosquito movie for a while, you know, because I'm I loved all the them, the giant ant movie, yeah. and all the 50s movies. So it's a real homage to that. But I was trying to figure out what to do for my my first directorial movie. And I wanted to do something that would stand out, you know, like and I had started something and Tom worked on with, with me, uh thing called the Sportsman and that was campers going up north being hunted by a, a crazed a forest ranger you know all the standard stuff but i kept going back to the giant mosquito thing because i thought well it hadn't been done you know i mean we had the insect movies we had different things you know grasshoppers and everything but i thought well mosquito you know if it's a big enough mosquito it sucks all your blood then if you have a shotgun and you shoot it we can blow it up and we can say the bloodiest <laughs> movie ever made you know so there was a whole lot of ideas floating around about how to how to make a stink, how to make something, you know, catch. Yeah. Knowing we weren't going to have a lot of money. We weren't going to have big name stars, none of that stuff. Right. So, so I kind of came up with that. I had been putzing around with it. And then, yeah. And then Tom called and said, Hey, you know, we're, let's talk, you know? So I remember we went, we got in there and we just started talking about ideas and everything. And everybody kind of, I think we took a vote and everybody said, yeah, Skeeters, let's make Skeeters, you know? And um, I had a couple of connections couple of uh, partners in the wings that were instrumental in helping put some money together. And so we kind of all partnered up and felt, well, this is the way to go, you know? And I think at the time too, you know, our intention was we'll make it like frostbiter, right? You know, seat of the pants, dah, da da. Well, you know, I was thinking, well, we gotta be bigger. You know, of course yeah. I was, it's gotta be bigger. But I remember going, you know, guys, we gotta, you know, we, we need to, might need to be a little bigger. Um, so I had originally written the script with a buddy of mine uh, named Steve Hodge, and he had worked on a couple of things. He made a movie called The Nostril Picker. It was called The Changer, got changed to The Nostril Picker. But uh, we wrote like the original script, and then Tom came in once we partnered up, and we rewrote it. And um, one of the things Tom did is great, because you know I had this idea for the film, and it was ridiculously huge, right? Yeah. As I said you know I'm thinking no it's big right I had terrorists blowing up a nuclear power plant and the nuclear you know fusion material goes into the water and a mosquito grows big and there's a train and you know helicopters and uh, it was completely out completely <laughs> out of orbit and um, so I remember when time came in we we're like okay well, what's this got to really be it sounds like it's a cabin in the wood you know it's got to be a <laughs> house you know we got to make it it's got we got to make it manageable so one of the things we did is, you know, we took it back down, you know, so we got rid of all the stuff that we knew we couldn't do. What's the story? And it was at that time that it was like, okay, alien DNA, you know, I was thinking War of the Worlds and the alien arm comes out and the mosquito bites it and it's a, you know, you had to have the reason for them to grow big. Yeah. So we really went that route with it, you know, and it will also put us into, it was good because it put us in more of a sci-fi realm, you know, where we could have a little bit of science fiction and, uh, one of the effects guys he worked with, uh, Richard Jacobson, he had built a motion control rig. This guy's like a phenomenal mechanic and a filmmaker guy and just technical stuff. And he had built a motion control rig. So we're like, well, hey, let's put a spaceship on it and he can shoot the Star Wars spaceships opening sequence for us. So again, it was us going back and cherry picking all the things we could do or could get that could make it seem bigger, you know, for the budget. Um, Tom's family had uh, a farmhouse. And of course he said, well, we can get the farmhouse. So we're like, we got us a farmhouse, right? And so, you know, we use that for the exterior. We built our interiors and everything, but uh, that's kind of how it all came together. But the story, real basic story is um, uh, a camp uh, uh, camp ranger, uh, Megan, she's got a new job and she's going up to the campground to, to start a new job. And her boyfriend, Ray is kind of like, a kind of a punk truck driver kind of guy, you know, it's like, whatever, he's taking her up to work. And along the way, they hit a giant mosquito on the road. And she's like, this is a, you know, looks like a, you know, proboscis. And she's talking about all the bullshit and he's like, yeah, big deal. Well, when they get to the campground, of course, alien spaceship had crashed. Mosquitoes are growing big. And, um, before she gets to the campground, the mosquitoes attack and just kill everybody in the campground. And when they get there, everybody's dead. And that shot the way, you
1: have of the camera panning over all the dead yeah. bodies is awesome.
3: Yeah. So, you know, we set it up with introducing those characters and we introduced the character of the scientist, played by, you know, good, good buddy of ours, Steve Dixon, who we met on the carrier. Once again, it's that whole circle. Um, we worked with Steve Dixon on that movie and he played a doctor in that movie. And I think me and Tom, we said, man, Steve's got authority, you know. He's the professor. So we put him, gave him a Geiger counter, and he was out looking for the meteor. Then we had, I had been corresponding with Gunnar Henson for years. I had, uh, I wanted him to be in my Sportsman film. That didn't happen. So I said, hey, why don't you come out and be in this one? And he agreed, so he would play the bad guy. And so we had the bad guys, the good guys, and the scientists. So, you know, we had our, you know, we had our Gilligan's Island of people coming together. Really, it's Gilligan's Island, right? Yeah. and. Um, so when we show up at the campsite, of course we're like, "Well, where does Ron fit in?" Well, Ron's got to play a camp count, you know. <laughs> uh, <a laughs> I <manager>. the boat. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's just it's it's Ron, and we were like, you know, after uh, Frostbiter, we knew how we to knew write who Ron was right. We knew, we knew who Ron Ashton was, and how we could utilize him, and he could really lift the movie in a different direction. And you could always go to him for some humor. We also knew, you know even though we play the movie we're we're being serious with the movie because of our budget and our experience you know there's a certain amount of camp that's going to come into it no matter what we try to do it's going to be there now we put some of it there some of it was unintentional but we thought well if you've got ron ashton in there and it goes a little campy we'll just blame ron and it's okay because that's who ron is it's great right but uh so that was really it just create all the characters get them to the campground Mosquitoes are attacking and they all have to join forces. And um, my mom had a uh, motorhome, which was called the Patty Wagon. Her name was Pat. And it was a motorhome she had always wanted to go camping in. And so she had that for a few years. And I asked her if we could borrow it <laughs> to use as a production vehicle and as a camera vehicle, you know, to, to shoot it in the movie. And I said, we'd get it back to her and the movie's done. No. <laughs> and, you know, this was perfect. We could use it for makeup. We could use it, you know, for the bathroom. We could be on location, and it would be a prop, a live action prop. Well, she went to me. She said, "No, listen. Why don't you just take the motor home? Because I know when you're done with it, it will be trashed. It won't be worth anything." <laughs> and she was kind of right. I mean, we, you know, it got ran into a tree, and, and you know, over. the toilet, the toilet, <laughs> toilet stopped working pretty much on day two. You know, because it just blew up so you know we trashed it but uh so it's really about getting all those elements we had a we had a house so script leaned that way we had a motor home that was the big chase vehicle we could build a miniature of it for the crash scene because we could do the effects so we were building on everything we could do and we had done and that, we, that came from so really frostbiter set the stage for mosquito to happen in a big, you know, in the big way that, you know, we all moved into that different direction. Um, and it was also me going, well, if the mosquitoes are this big, it's no big deal, you know, but if they're three feet and they can almost carry you, it's a big deal. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we did that. And I thought, you know, that's the key. And we had a couple of key scenes, you know, I had, uh, they called the Genesis shot. Uh, you know, if you've seen the movie, there's a scene in the campground at night with the guy and the girl, you know, the two lovers, and the guy yeah. leaving the tent. Well, that that shot, the Genesis shot, is when the girl rolls over and looks, and she thinks it's the boyfriend, and it's the giant mosquito.
1: <laughs> My wife was like, "Like, what? What? What's that mosquito gonna do? Oh God! Oh God!"
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was that, It was her point. Of, it was her point of view, which I think Tom coined it the Genesis shot because I think I because I drew a storyboard, you know of the mosquito, you know, looking past the girl's breast to the giant mosquito with the stinger. Yeah. (laughs) Very phallic, right? And I'm like, if this is in the movie, nobody has seen this. This is cool. This will get people to remember it. So we kind of call it the Genesis shot. But it was really that, you know, those, a bunch of thumbnail ideas like that, that, you know, found its way into the script and then the big giant script got honed down when Tom came in, but to a workable thing. Well, I, I have to tell you, Gary, I, I, um, I was out in Los Angeles,
2: and I had a friend working on Flubber, the Robin Williams movie, and they were shooting some of the effects, and I went to the effects stage to visit him. and I walked into the effects stage, and this guy immediately walked me around to everyone and introduced me as the guy who shot the stinger in the ass. because. <laughs> <laughs> because this guy was doing video playback and every once in a while, just to keep everybody smiling and laughing, he would flash your scene, that scene up on the video playback. And so that kind of became a a legend there on the set of Flubber. And so
1: (laughs) I'm gonna think about that every time I see Flubber now is behind the scenes, they're all thinking about Mosquito.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We shot that, you know, so we, we had the farmhouse which we shot the exteriors, but we had a, uh, um, friends of ours had a factory, a, a tool and die shop in Detroit, and they were moving to a new building and we commandeered the old building. They became one of our investors and gave us the building for a year. So we had a building and, you know, with utilities and everything. So we built our sets in there. It was basically our studio. It was the whole, all the interior sets, all the makeup effects, the miniature motor home crash, Everything was built in there. And we built the miniature house in there, which was like eight and a half foot tall by 12, 14 foot. We took that out on a location to blow up for the end of the movie. That
1: explosion is impressive. Like a lot of times you could tell if it's a miniature being blown up. And when I had a watch it, I was like, did they blow up a real house? (laughs) That was was great. It
3: It was like a third scale, like one third scale. It was pretty big. Yeah. I remember calling Gary and um, he had just
2: received the dailies and I was somewhere else and I called him and I said, how does it look? And Gary said, it looks as good as anything out of ILM. And I said, no, shut up. How does it look? He said, it looks as good as anything out of ILM. It looks incredible. And I said, wow. And yeah, it did.
3: It really, really came off well. Well, it was really the, uh, we, and we basically had a whole day. I mean, it was right around the end of the shoot. We had, I think we had a PA working on the film whose parents were away for the weekend. And we said, hey, we need a field to set this up and blow it up. And he goes, hey, come to my house. <laughs> so we went out to his house. I remember we loaded everything up, went out there, got there before noon. And we spent all day setting up this big miniature, huge, you know, miniature. And uh, then it took us all day to rig all the pyro in it. And we blew it up at like two o'clock in the morning. We had like five or six cameras on it. But we had the fire department came out and they were there with their fire truck and they were asleep. And we woke them up and said, hey, we're ready to blow it up. They woke up and they had their fire hoses ready and we blew it up and they came in and put it out, you know. But uh, it was it was really cool. Well, I knew when we when we did that, once we blew the house up, I was pretty sure we had something, but it went pretty quick, you know, and yeah. we were shooting high speed and everything. but. I just felt at the end of that, after we blew that up, that we had an end for the movie, you know. Because as a kid growing up, I I'd, I'd ask our, I'd ask my dad to wake me up because Bridge on the River Kwai would be on and it'd be late, you know. I'd say wake me up at the very end when they blow up the bridge, you know. So wake <laughs> us up at 11 o'clock or 10:45 to watch the bridge blow up. But I always felt like if you go back through the movies and some of my favorite movies. You'll see where I've been going with my career. Um, You look at Bridge on the River Kwai. Look at Jaws, Bonnie and Clyde. um, Pick the movie, Scarface. I mean, pick the movie. The greats, they take you on this roller coaster, and they keep topping. They keep bumping it up, bumping it up. And then at the end, there's that taxi driver or whatever. There's that explosion of either violence or action or a resolution that's because it's been bottled up the whole movie. And I always feel like it gives that audience a great ride, you know? Yeah. So always going to blow something up at the end. <laughs> Something's got to blow up, you know? Exactly. <laughs>
1: well,
2: it's awesome. funny that he says that, Zach, because I think Gary's got me booked in a couple of weeks to go shoot with our epic, our our, our red cameras, high speed something blowing up for the end of his new movie. That's correct. <laughs> That'll be fun. We're gonna,
3: blow, we're gonna blow up part of the uh, Shawshank prison. Awesome.
2: Yeah, he's serious. He he shot in that prison. His, his new film, and uh, he's blowing it up at the end. So he's been working on the miniature.
1: That sounds like fun. <laughs> just just part of it. <laughs> I've I've only ever blown stuff up with air compressors in a movie. I'd, I'd like to get the budget one day <laughs> to get the. Pirate. I
3: know a guy, Gary, right there. <laughs> right, <laughs> to help you out. I used to back in uh, you know back when me and Tom had started out when I was doing effects this was back in the 80s it was a whole different time frame and I would go and I remember getting pyrotechnician licenses and getting you know ATF licenses for for guns you know and you had to fill forms out and do all this stuff and you had to have storage facilities it was a different time and I used to do a lot of fireworks shows A, a friend of mine had a fireworks company so we would make fireworks and go shoot off shows so you know, you kind of rural areas, you could do those things back then, you know, it was a little more, so I learned, I was able to learn, you know, get yeah. enough practice to learn how to deal, to deal with pyrotechnics, but um, I don't really carry the licenses or are doing anymore, but it was, was definitely something back in the day. It was, you know, blowing up the miniatures and everything was always a, a fun thing. So we're going to do a lot of it this time. We have uh, air mortars and air cannons and some propane stuff. So it's going to be a little less, won't necessarily, you know, It'll be spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> A little like Mosquito.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I can't wait. Um, so let's talk about Tom's new movie, The Wind Walker. Play the trailer right now. I haven't much time. I have to tell you about the legends. I tried to save him. He was consumed by what he discovered. Oh, my God. It's your dad's story. The wind walker. What about the kids? Bless me,
2: I've Gotta get out of here.
1: That was the trailer for the Windwalker. Uh Tom, you want to tell us a little bit about the movie? I, I watched this and it felt like a spiritual sequel to Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wind to Go. I and I don't know if that was your intention, but it felt to me that the character of Jack was you looking back on the younger version of you making Frostbiter and wanting to revisit <laughs> that territory.
2: Well, thanks. Yeah, it, it was really, it was really, like I said, a surreal experience because I showed the movie. Actually, played in Iceland, *Windwalker*. That was the first film festival that it played in. It was scheduled to play in a number of film festivals this year that were all canceled due to COVID, which is really a bummer. Um, but um, s- watching *Windwalker* with a crowd, and then that same evening watching Frostbiter, um, it <laughs> I kind of agree with you. And and you know, and talked to a number of people that said. Wow, it was almost like a Hollywood version of Frostbiter, you know, and, and seeing Frostbiter and it had all this energy and crazy frenetic camera moves and you know, monsters coming up from all over the place. And then Windwalker, which was a little, you know, perhaps more tamed in terms of camera movement and and, and everything. But um Yeah, it's just, it was kind of a project I've been working on for a long time. Took a long time to make, because to be honest, the budget was about the same as Frostbiter. Um, And uh, just spent years doing the digital effects. Most of them were done by two or three of us. And uh, yeah, that's that's, it.
1: I, yeah, I had a good time watching this um, just because of the subject matter how, how it, it just felt like uh, if there was a frostbite or two, 25 years later, this would, this would be the movie. And like what happened to everybody in the cabin? You know, they, they disappeared or died. And, and you wanna tell a, a synopsis of, of Wind Walker?
2: Yeah, so Wind Walker is the tale of Jack Vincent Jr. And Jack Vincent Jr. is a young, successful author who 25 years ago, Um, his father disappeared, who also was an author. So the way to look at it was, I kind of thought like if Jack Vincent Senior was H.P. Lovecraft and Jack Vincent Junior was Stephen King, right? So Jack Vincent Senior disappeared 25 years ago. He was up at a cabin in Northern Michigan writing his theoretical greatest novel ever, The Wind Walker, and he disappears. So 25 years later, Jack Vincent Jr.'s uh, publisher convinces him to go back to the cabin and finish his father's book. Well, what he discovers is that his father had discovered more than just a book, it wasn't just a story. So he unfolds this entire history and legend and kind of re, you know, releases the Windwalker, and then has to put it back down. And, uh, so it was in many ways, parallel, a parallel story to the Wendigo.
1: That's awesome. Um, what, what kind of draws you to the Native American lore from these two movies? Is it just something that stuck with you or,
2: you know, I think just growing up here in Michigan with such a, a strong, um, tie to the Ojibwa nation and, um, just all of that great history. And, you know, I, I guess I'm just drawn to that, obviously, Uh, you know, I spent a lot of my life uh, researching that, did a lot of research into the Ojibwa language and nations to do the film, and um, it's just something that, you know, really tickles my fancy, so.
1: That's awesome, and it's on Amazon Prime right now, which, um, like you said, unfortunately, because of Every everything it can play in the festivals, but it's definitely worth watching. And I'm I'm glad I was able to to see it. So, is there a physical release planned for uh, the Windwalker?
2: So it is. It's out there everywhere. It's on iTunes. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Google Play. The DVD is out there. The DVD. I mean, it's been released all around the world. Um, one of the things that I I would like to mention is that. Uh, one of the reviews even said it kind of feels like a goosebumps to me and I really wanted to make something that you could watch with your family. You know, another reviewer said it's a great introduction to horror movies for a family. If you have, you know, a young family, there are no guns in it. There's very little swearing. You know, I, I, I was trying to do what the Ray Harry Haas movies did for me when I was a kid, you know, just kind of a fantastic story with great monsters and lore behind it. And I, it seems to me that people that watch it with their families really enjoy it. Perhaps people looking for just the blown out scary ass horror movie are not as happy with it as the you know the people introducing their kids to a horror movie or you know wanting to watch something as an entire family.
1: And the creature design of the, of the wind Walkers, and you have one of the wind Walkers behind you. Which... Yeah,
2: so that actually, my son did that. He uh, he recently had graduated from the University of Michigan with a gr- degree in art and design and had worked with some of the great um, photographers there at the university, David Turnley, Pulitzer Prize winner, and uh, he studied sculpting. And so he came in and when he graduated, unlike most fathers, I said, why don't you just stick around for a little bit? Don't get a job. <laughs> help me finish this thing. And so he did <laughs> and he, he, he sculpted the creature. He went to Los Angeles. He would, did the sound mix. He, he was great. It was very instrumental in getting the whole movie finished.
1: I noticed uh, from the credits, it looked like you had a lot of family working on and acting in the movie.
2: Yeah. So it, it's a small project. I mean, it's just, it's probably smaller than Frostbiter to be honest. Um, you know, it, <laughs> it's funny because I would tell at the sound mix, the guy would say, well, why didn't, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you? I'm like, you don't understand. This was two guys in a camera, you know, like it, it was very often me on the camera, uh, maybe my wife, you know, holding a light and the talent in front of us. So it was a very, very small movie. Again, the budget was probably less than frostbiter.
1: It it's a lot of fun. And I think, yeah, if, if you like frostbiter, Definitely check out the Wind Walker. For
3: well, sure. I know when I when I saw when I saw the screening, I went up to Tom afterwards because I, I didn't work on the movie. I had seen a few things along the way, um, so after I saw the movie, I went, "Wow, okay." Uh, when we were making Frostbiter, you know all the ideas Tom had and all the all the lore and the fantasy elements and all that, you know it's all the same, <laughs> and it's just the different it's just a little bit of experience, you know, it's a little bit of experience getting a little bit older and then really kind of rounding back to, I think, you know, what was the inspiration that got you interested in movies? So what I would say is you watch the Windwalker, and then go watch frostbiter to see how the Windwalker came about. Cause to me, it's, it really is the extension. I, I think I said to Tom after, after the screen and I was very impressed. I mean, I'm like, Holy shit, man. I mean, you really pulled off something here huge. And I'm like, you know, you did the things, whatever you didn't get in Frostbiter or whatever lacked in Frostbiter that didn't come through, you know, you did it here tenfold. So I felt like it was a real, uh, they're really in the same family, but I think yeah. it's uh, watch Windwalker and then go find, you know, Frostbiter and you'll go, I see the connection.
1: It's definitely a good night, and throw mosquito in
3: there
1: for the triple feature for for the for the whole evening.
3: Yeah, well, you'll have to, you know, get the kids and you watch the watch Windwalker with the kids. Send the kids to bed, then you can watch mosquito, or (laughs) either one, mosquito or Frostfire. But then, you know, uh, yeah, the movies will progressively get a little bit more um,
1: little dirty and
3: more independent. Let's say (laughs) closer to. Closer to Ron Ashton's, you know, we have no submarines, but the other things are in those other (laughs) books.
1: Exactly. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on. And uh, Gary, do you have anything that you want to promote or where can they follow you on the internets if that's a um, thing for you?
3: Actually, so what we have, uh, uh, the new project I'm doing, and I should be finished here shortly this year, is called Escape from Death Block 13 and we're in the final stages of post right now. We should be finishing up within the next month or so. So uh, first of the year is when it's probably gonna become, you know, first quarter of next year will become available. I'll be heading out in January to go meet with distributors and that so, but you can go online right now. There's a, we still have our trailer up that we've had up for a while. It's on YouTube called Escape from Death Block 13.
1: Your and, lead looks like Charlie Bronson.
3: <laughs> our, uh, our, our lead guy is uh, uh, Robert Kovacs, Robert Bronzy. And yes, he, he resembles Charles Bronson. And I did another, I worked on another movie with him that I came in and helped produce. And I met him at Texas Frightmare. And uh, I wanted to do this action movie. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm a fan of the 70s movies and early 80s. You know, that my, my era was there, grew up on those. And I thought, you know, if I have this guy in the movie, the audience will feel, they'll get the love of those earlier movies that I had. Because my movie, it's very much a throwback to those action movies, Escape from Death Block 13. So uh, we got him in it. And um, also, uh, Chris Hahn, who's a good buddy, who played uh, Bunyan in Axe Giant, The Wrath of Paul Bunyan. He stars in it. And then uh, Nick Tuturo plays a bad guy in it. And uh, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs plays uh, Langley, who's a CIA operative. Nice. So the, you know we've got a nice, good little cast of, of people in it. And uh, oh, a lot of um, a lot of our inmates in the movie are wrestlers. Nice, <laughs> and so big wrestling cast who tends to do a lot of fighting and destruction. So you can imagine where it's going. But uh, we'll look for it early next year. But you can check out the uh, the trailer online, and then we have the Facebook page and the YouTube YouTube page, and all that stuff's going up shortly. So Great. keep an eye out for it.
1: Can do. What about you, Tom? Where can they follow you? Or what, what should we be looking for next? Uh,
2: there are a couple projects I'm working on. Um, I'm not sure. It, I've, I've, There's a lot of interest from Iceland. Uh, I was sent a novel that was uh, written in Iceland that uh, some people there have been trying to encourage me to do and a uh, lighthouse thing. But uh, I may be doing something next year relatively quick, a short shoot, maybe 10 10 days, two weeks. So we'll see. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you
1: guys so much. Thank you,
2: Zach. It's
1: been a great uh, evening. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. And we'll sign off. I'll join back in the audience in just a bit. Wow. That was awesome. Thank you, Tom and Gary. That was a real treat. One thing I like to do on the show is to pair the movie up with a non-trauma title for a double feature. Windwalker and Mosquito would both make great double features with Frostbiter. And at the time of recording, um, you could find both on Amazon. But the film I chose to do my double is 1978's The Manitou. How long have you had this? About
2: three days.
5: It has been 400 years since its last reincarnation.
2: Any pain? It... Kind of moves sometimes.
5: The soul of black magic is waiting to be reborn. What's your
2: diagnosis.
5: For years, man has turned his back on the supernatural.
4: Mrs. You Might almost describe it. Dying.
5: Some will deny it. As a fetus, others will fear it. On her neck, one woman will give birth to it. Uh... The Manitou. Since the beginning of time, it has practiced the mysterious arts. Its day is near. Each hour it grows stronger. Soon it will come. The Manitou. Tony Curtis on a supernatural journey into the world of avenging spirits Michael Ansara what does a white man want with Indian magic a modern American Indian thrust into a savage struggle with unspeakable taboos Susan Strasberg living in a nightmare innocent people tormented by terror threatened by the unknown Trapped by an ancient horror the manor tool an evil that never dies it just waits to be reborn the manor tool.
1: That was the trailer for The Manitou, directed by William Girdler, who directed such films as Abby, Grizzly, Sheba Baby, and even the trauma movie Project Kill. That one stars Leslie Nielsen. The Manitou stars Tony Curtis, and it has a fun uh, appearance by Burgess Meredith. It's about the, sto- the story's about there's this woman who finds a lump growing on her neck, and when she gets it checked out by the doctors, it turns out to be a fetus. And it keeps growing larger and larger. That fetus is actually a 400-year-old demonic Native American spirit. This movie is absolutely bonkers and totally worth watching. And seeing 1970s-era footage of San Francisco is awesome, as well as the practical effects. Screen Factory put out a great-looking Blu-ray and it's totally worth checking out. Frostbiter is on DVD VHS and you can see it on Troma now at watch.troma.com. Well, that's all the time for now. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at Larry, or follow the show on Twitter, at Talkin' Trauma. I look forward to bringing you all another Trow masterpiece next time. I'm going to leave you with a short clip of Ron Ashton talking about making music and movies, and always stay traumatized. I want to do, uh, uh,
0: produce films, act in films, and do the soundtracks. I still want to stay in music. I'll, I'll still do albums rock albums but i want to do movie soundtrack albums also and act and write the whole thing